This presentation was from Yox Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Isn't it nice to all be back together again? After a day and a half of being apart. We have two talks to bring this year's UX Australia to a close. Um, the first of those, very, uh, very pleased to introduce to the stage Michael Pamier from Tobias. Please join me in welcoming Michael to give our, I guess, our, our warm-up closing. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Okay, mic's working. Oh. Mic works. Mic works. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, too hard sometimes, really. Um. All right. So, hello. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about value. And what I really want to do today is, is fundamentally challenge how you currently think about value. So I'm going to be talking about some of the fundamental flaws and failures of our current value framework and how this has limited our capacity to do good as designers. Now, for some designers, this critique is, is going to be pretty radical. But for others, social theorists in academia, for example, this is actually quite pedestrian. But after hearing some of the discussions over the last couple of days, especially Sharon's keynote, uh, Ash's talk, of course, and other talks on ethics, inclusivity, and doing good, I definitely think that we're up for this kind of discussion. So I'm a designer, a researcher, an anthropologist, and a sociologist. And I especially love exploring the problem space. Many of us don't actually see what I'm about to talk about uh, as an actual problem. But this problem defines our work as designers and dictates which problems we can actually solve. For example, attempting to solve poverty and inequality are never going to make for an impressive quarterly profit. So we don't prioritise such problems and we focus on solutions with the most economic value. We think of this as being just the way things are, but is this really the, the natural way of things? Or is it a problem in itself that we can actually challenge? Why can't we all work full-time trying to solve poverty, mitigate climate change, the refugee crisis? If our work as human-centred designers is about solving real problems, then why aren't we all working on these real big issues? It's because those big social problems don't make money. They aren't profitable problems. We assume they'll somehow be solved by this thing called the market, so we don't prioritise them. Profit, it turns out, is more of an incentive than actively making the world a better place, which makes you really question our values as a society. So how do we go about articulating this problem? I'm going to start analysing this problem through the lens of value. How do we define value? What's our current value framework? What does a valuable world look like? And how are we currently creating it in our everyday life? So what are we actually talking about when we say value? Two ways that anthropologist David Graeber has theorised value are sociological value and economic value. Sociological value is ultimately about what is good, proper or desirable in human life. Some people might value equality and harmony, while others might value prestige and competition. These values are what shape 
our relations and decisions and make us ask things like, is happiness what we desire or do we reward greed? Are our individual interests paramount or do we have a selfless obligation to other people? These values are what justify or discourage our actions and can be understood as personal or cultural values. Economic value is how most of us frame value in our work. Financial theory sees prices as the best representation of value, and value is created by producing and exchanging capital. Economic theory generally assumes that people know what they want and try to get as much of it as possible with the least amount of cost and effort, something called economizing. And this is essentially what defines a thing's value. Now, there are many ways of talking about value, but many designers ultimately have to align to economic concepts of value. The problem here, though, is that human life is a social thing, not just an economic thing. The world isn't made of numbers, so it's hard to talk about return on investment when we're dealing with things like atmosphere, experience, or meaning, which are inherently difficult to measure and produce. What we value definitely isn't just what has economic value. So what I want to do now is point to something called modernity. This is what modern society is supposedly striving to achieve, and most importantly, is the value framework that has shaped the modern world. Modernity is about efficiency, individualism, technological upscaling, and rationalism, things we all perpetuate as designers. Now, these ideas, structures, and patterns emerged from the Enlightenment and have defined Western society and spread throughout the world over the last few hundred years. Sociologists see some of modernity's central components as being industrial and capitalist economies, where we organize ourselves around machines for efficient mass production to enable ever-increasing profit and consumption. Rationalism, where decisions aren't based on emotion or tradition. Individualism, which supports individuals over groups and communities. And it holds that doing all of these things will create a more equal, just, and fair society. But in action... This looks like technological upscaling for the sake of it. Profit-based work instead of outcomes based on social well-being and ecological impact. It pushes us to do things faster, more efficiently, and in more calculated ways instead of acting slowly, emotionally, or for purely experiential value. It also looks like a society of competitive individuals, not cooperative social groups. And it looks like us believing that these are all good things. So we've come to see these as inherent indicators of progress, but are they? Many economists say yes, though some are beginning to say no. And many anthropologists and sociologists say no, though many used to actually say yes. So the new optimists are a collection of thinkers who suggest that, yes, the world is better now than it has ever been because of things like modernity. They point to examples like a lower percentage of people living in extreme poverty, lower rates of child mortality and higher rates of electricity access. Now, Oliver Berkman has a great article critiquing this this rather absolute claim. He agrees that, yes, some things are better than they were, especially if you point to things like the plague and the world wars. But things are definitely nowhere near as good as they ought to be. We shouldn't be satisfied just because we aren't dying from war and disease, especially when many people still are when most saliently we could have eliminated famine and reversed uh, human-induced climate change and greatly reduced human suffering and ecological damage. But we haven't because we've focused our energy elsewhere. And in the meantime, some measurably bad things have been manifesting. There are more displaced people 
than ever before. More slaves today than ever before. Real wages have been flat or falling since 1979, while company profits have increased and wealth has become more concentrated. And even middle-class white Americans are dying younger for the first time in decades due to suicide, substance abuse, and chronic disease. And then there are other harder-to-measure costs, like decreasing mental health, the loss of meaning, and increased uncertainty. Now, we design these things into being when we think of profit and modernization as solutions to all problems. And it isn't just at the meta level that these things are not inherently valuable. We can also see it in everyday life. So my first example of this being the case is from Dan Ariely, a behavioral economist who talks about a conversation he had with a locksmith. As an apprentice, this locksmith struggled and broke locks and took a long time to complete his work. Despite this, he was shown great appreciation and even given monetary tips. Now that he's an expert, he works quickly, effortlessly, and without error. But customers complain about what he charges for just a few minutes' work, even though he doesn't charge any more than he did when he was an apprentice. Ariely posits that the perceived value of the locksmith's work is about visible effort, not just the outcome. So in some ways, this is about empathy and social obligation, but it's also about efficiency. The more efficient he is, the less valuable his work seems to be. Now, the economic view of value is that increased efficiency and productivity are good things because more production and less waste equals greater wealth. But that's not necessarily how efficiency is valued in a social sense. In social terms, we might actually do better to link efficiency and value together in a somewhat inverse relationship. So as efficiency increases, value might actually decrease. My second example is from Bridget Jordan, an anthropologist who examined childbirth in low-technology Mayan culture and high-technology hospitals. In Mayan childbirth, the source of knowledge is the woman. People read the tension in the ropes she pulls on for support. What she says and how she acts are what determines the degree of intervention and assistance. The source of knowledge in high-technology hospitals comes from machines and technicians whose job it is to medicalize and mechanize delivery from passive women. Jordan discusses how high-technology environments can disempower women in childbirth by shifting power effectively to others. Now, crucial information in such a context comes from procedures, results, and machine outputs that are interpreted by technicians, specialists, instead of collaboration based on the woman's embodied knowledge. So high-technology childbirth is really the manifestation of efficiency and objectivity. It seeks to move from emotion and tradition to science and technology. And we tend to upscale technologically because we believe it's progressive and empowering. But Jordan discusses how it can disempower and devalue women in childbirth. And my third example is from a rapid ethnography of Melbourne's Queen Victoria market during discussions of redevelopment there. So many vendors that I spoke to were concerned that the redevelopment would focus on making money and believe that doing so would destroy Queen Vic Market's value. One vendor left a high-paying job to do what he does now for significantly less money. To him, the, the market was a place to interact and share knowledge, to exchange quality, rare goods in small volumes, and that was exactly why people went there instead of visiting large corporates that sold high volumes of mass-produced goods. His view was that if the council looked for a return on investment, it would turn Queen Vic markets into a place where people sold whatever they could to pay high rents and it would lose its cultural value. The markets shouldn't be redeveloped with a view to make profits, he said, because its value was social, not, cult uh, sorry, not fiscal. 
So what he valued was really quite antithetical to that value framework of modernity. My last example is from my PhD work. Part of my thesis explores service encounters in public health and with witch doctors in Seychelles, or bonhomme du bois, as they're commonly called there. I had my first child during my fieldwork. It was planned, right? My wife did her PhD fieldwork there as well. And, uh, and this allowed us to become quite immersed in the public health experience. And I juxtapose some of that with the experiences of witch doctors and their clients. What my and others' experiences surfaced was that public healthcare was very transactional and paternalistic. It had clear, efficient processes based on the goals of doctors, technicians, and institutions, rather than being patient-centered. The witchcraft service encounter, on the other hand, facilitated superstition, embodied knowledge, tradition, and emotion. It's a valued contemporary practice, but it isn't logical, rational, or efficient in the same ways. People pay to see a witch doctor, even though public health care in socials is free. Now, David Graeber explains magic as being about realizing one's intentions by acting on the world. How that's done doesn't really matter. It's not about efficacy or rationalism as much as it's about acting on values and intentions. Now, the clients of witch doctors are motivated to follow advice because it's part of a ritual that leverages intrinsic motivations and makes them part of something greater. And that contrasts with transactive healthcare, where patients aren't active in their own betterment, we have no meaningful actions to perform. And so the modern efficient and rational experience in Seychelles was rather paternalistic and transactional, and as such created a desire and need for something else. And that's where witchcraft's value was realised. So in those examples, we see that the values of modernity aren't always reflected in everyday life, but there are also some clear consequences of operating with that kind of logic. The raising of children, for example, is clearly valuable, but stay-at-home parents aren't paid for what they do. And that's because domestic work isn't something that is seen as having economic value. So women tend to be the ones that, that do that work, and this contributes to them retiring with less superannuation than men. So if you have a relationship, for example, breaks down after 20 years with a man getting superannuation that whole time and a stay-at-home mother who wasn't, who's empowered because they did work of economic value instead of social value? And it's seeing the world in economic terms like this that really systematize inequality and shut out a lot of what's valuable in the world. So another consequence of dogmatically applying that logic occurs when we reduce and automate social interaction. Hart and Negri have an incommunicado theory which argues that media inhibits communication so that we lose the affective and atmospheric information like presence, touch, mood, emotion, sensations, effectively making connections less meaningful. Former Google design ethicist, Tristan Harris sees a fundamental conflict between what people need and what companies need because what we design is always tilted in favor of the companies trying to get people to use their stuff. So much of our work as designers, he states, attempts to hijack the psychology of people to get them hooked on what we offer. Now, Herbert Simon said that design is about devising courses of action aimed at changing existing conditions into preferred ones. So we think about how things ought to be and create the world accordingly. Now, for some reason, I don't think that the empathetic, socially conscious designers here believe the world 
ought to be a place where wealth is concentrated amongst a few people, while large numbers of people unnecessarily suffer, where we encourage exploitation and even think that being overworked is virtuous, where we perpetuate meaningless consumerism and purposeless growth. So clearly the core purpose of much of our work isn't inherently valuable. Now, I had initially planned to provide a kind of ethical value framework as a takeaway, uh, but as often happens, the more you look into complex problems, the more you realize that simple solutions like frameworks are not really solutions because the problem is actually, in this case especially, much bigger than just what we do in our day-to-day. And that's because this issue is something that lies in ideology. It's something that we perpetuate every day, and we can't just decide that, yes, starting tomorrow, we're going to do good work. And that's because our cultural and political structures don't prioritize this kind of stuff. We need to change our social narrative and challenge norms so that it stops being normal to do damaging work to create profit. And here are some takeaways from people who have thought in different ways about how to approach problems like this. Social theorist Pierre Bourdieu believed that we needed to factor in the social costs of economic decisions, things like suffering, sickness, suicide, addiction, violence, and so on, which all cost a great deal in money, but also in misery. Mike Montero, who I'm excited to see up next, says that when we're hired to do a job like dig a ditch, we also need to evaluate the economic, sociological, and ecological impact of that ditch. And if it fails, it's our job to destroy the shovels. Designer Thomas Wendt suggests that we need to shore up the courage and political vulnerability to ask difficult questions and do away with the cowardly stance of appeasing client whims at the cost of long-term sustainability. Oxfam researcher Kate Rayworth has put forward the idea of donut economics, where success metrics should be about meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet. And that means being growth agnostic. Anthropologist Arturo Escobar sees design as a political tool of modernity serving capitalist ends. He argues for a new vision of design that deprioritizes commercial and modernizing aims in favor of collaborative, place-based approaches that are deeply attuned to justice and the earth. But how do we go about doing good when we rely on things like organizations and governments that won't actually support this kind of work, no matter what we want to do as individuals? As in Lewin's formula, we might think of behavior as being the result of a person and their environment. As designers, we design environments that influence the behavior of others. But what about their environments that shape our own behavior? And the behavior of the stakeholders and corporations and governments that ultimately shape the world that we live in. Thinking about the environments we design is obviously crucial, but we also need to think about the environments that we design in because those environments are ultimately what influence, what gets implemented, and what we can even do in the first place. Because we can only do so much as individuals in our day-to-day. And I believe that to make meaningful change here, we need to challenge the fundamental structures of our societies, because that's what shapes what is possible. And I'm going to say it, that involves challenging capitalism. Let's see where. But really, we we need to think about radical, innovative approaches from the level of everyday life, cultural life, to our political structures, organizations, and institutions. And as designers, we shouldn't be afraid of doing that because we need radical, cultural, and political transformation to prioritize what's really valuable, enable the doing of good, and prioritize social and ecological outcomes.
Because where we focus our energy today will create the world of tomorrow. And if we're creating a world that we wouldn't want to live in, then we need to challenge how it's currently being made. And we are going to solve this overnight, but we need to start a serious dialogue to stimulate thought and change the world by changing minds. So we've come up with How Might We Do Good, a Slack group to kick some of this off. This is a place to have important and challenging discussions with conservative and radical approaches. And I know my approach is is pretty radical and perhaps more cynical than most, but it's definitely not the only approach. So if you disagree or have thoughts that you want to share, please join the group and do it there. So head to my Twitter, at MichaelPowerMe, and join through the pinned tweet, or email join at howmightwedogood.com to get added. Or if you're just really opposed to my talk, you can send an email or tweet that says, you know, capitalism rules, death to all comedies, or something to that effect. But really, let's, let's use this to create a design ethics framework. I, you know, that's what Ash mentioned in his talk. We can build on this and learn about the barriers that we face, bring about the change that we need, and really start a design movement that matters. And here's a massive reading list for anyone that wants to read up a little bit more on what I've spoken about. And I'll post these slides, obviously, on Slack group and SlideShare in the next few days. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from UX Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.